Yeah, is that, is that your one there? No, that one there. That's it. Oh, right, sorry. <laughs> I thought you have to do your water. And I just want to put in a, a disclaimer, if you like, or just clear my name. I didn't cheat on purpose. I got um, a bit carried away with all the excitement and forgot to wait for go. So, <laughs> I am an honest person and you can listen to everything I'm about to say. So, this morning, um, I'm just going to speak really about four reasons why Christians can rejoice. And so the title of my sermon is called Four Reasons Suffering Saints Can Rejoice. And um, I'll be looking at the the first epistle of um, the Apostle Peter. And so when the Apostle Peter wrote his first epistle, Christians, they were facing um, fierce persecution. They were seen as atheists by the, the Romans, by the pagans, because they didn't worship the Roman gods. And they only worshipped one god, so they were called atheists by their community. They were seen as divisive because they no longer attended the pagan rituals and feasts. They were called cannibals because they would, they would eat Jesus' body and blood, which of course is represented through the, um, the, the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine. And not only that, they were seen as incestuous because they would refer to each other as brother and sister. And so all this led to the early Christians being severely persecuted. Not to mention that in AD 64, most of Rome was burned down. And history tells us that it was actually Emperor Nero who did so. But he blamed the Christians. He used the Christians as a scapegoat. And this further led to the Christians being persecuted. It resulted in the Christians being fed to lions. While the, the, the multitudes looked on and cheered. Christians being covered in oil and tied to the posts throughout Rome. And used as human torches to light the streets of Rome. And of course, it led to the martyrdom of all the apostles but one, who was the Apostle John. And as we know, he was still exiled to Patmos and himself faced persecution. And so it was in the midst of all this that the Apostle Peter wrote his letter to the church. And he was one of the leaders of the church. No doubt many of the Christians who was writing this letter to, who were now being persecuted, no doubt through his witness, through his preaching, they became Christians. And so he felt the need to comfort the believers. And, of course, that's what we see him do. You know, what, what could you say to such people? You know, what would you say? Well, we see some of what the Apostle um, Peter says here in his epistle. So it's just, I'm going to be reading um, six verses. It's the first chapter of his first epistle, and it's verses 3 to 9. So that's chapter 1 of 1 Peter, verses 3 to nine. Beginning there in verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, You rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, 
may be resort to praise and glory and honour at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you, and, though, and though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Ending there in verse 9. So here in this passage, as I said a moment ago, the Apostle Peter, he's writing to persecuted Christians. And he basically says, though you're suffering, though you're going through all this, yet you rejoice. And then he lists three reasons why they rejoice. And then, after that, he goes on to say why God has allowed them to go through these trials. And so when we take these things together, the three reasons why they rejoice, and the reason why God has allowed them to go through it, we find four reasons why suffering saints or, or Christians who are suffering can rejoice. And so this, this passage is very relevant to us today, living in the 21st century, because we too will suffer. We've heard today of, of Chris, who's at the moment in hospital and just come out of intensive care. And no doubt there's many people here who have suffered or will go through suffering. Maybe there's people who are normally here other than Chris and yet aren't here today. And yet here are four reasons why, despite our suffering, we can rejoice. And so the Apostle Peter writes to the church and he says they've been born again by God, in verse 3. He says they have an imperishable inheritance, verse 4. They're being guarded by the power of God, verse 5. And though they're going through trials, it is to test the genuineness of their faith, which is more precious than gold. And so we'll look at each of these and we'll see the four reasons. So the, the, the Apostle Peter... He lists a number of facts about the Christians. And he says that though you're facing trials because of these things, yet you can rejoice. And the first reason, as I was saying, is that God has caused them to be born again. It says there in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so they've been born again, and therefore they can rejoice. God has set his love upon them, and he has made them alive in Christ. They were once spiritually dead, but now they have spiritual life. They have become new creations in Christ. The verse says there in verse 3, they have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So not only have they been born again, not only do they have spiritual life, but they've been born again to a living hope, and that being eternal life. And that eternal life, as we see in the passage, is made secure through Jesus' resurrection from the dead. But before this, they had no hope. They were lost. They were separated from God. But now, because of the grace of God, they now have spiritual life. They've been born again, as Jesus himself said in chapter 3, without which no man can enter the kingdom of God. And as we see there in that verse, it's according to the great mercy of God. They didn't deserve it. What they deserved, as which we all deserve, what is God's wrath. But yet we see by God's grace, and because of his love for them, he's caused them to be born again. He's imparted his spiritual life to them. Ephesians chapter 2, it captures this well. And it's the Apostle Paul writing this time. And he says in verses 4 and 5 of that that, uh, chapter, he says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
Though they are being persecuted for their faith, yet they can rejoice. Yet it's all worth it because by God's grace they have been born again. They've been made alive in Christ. Though death may just be around the corner, though they could be fed to the lions, though they could be tied to a post and burnt to death, yet they can rejoice because they have spiritual life. They know where they're going when they die. They have a relationship with God. Their sins have been forgiven. They can rejoice. It's like before they were born again, you know, they were dead. They were, they were in the grave. Yes, they didn't have the persecution, but they didn't know God. They, they, they weren't spiritually alive. But now they can rejoice because yes, they're being persecuted. Yes, they're suffering. But it's only, it's only temporary. It's only for the moment which is passing. But they have spiritual life. They've been made alive by God. They are no longer a corpse, but they are living. And of course, it's vital for us to remember as we sit here today in Payton, yes, we shall go through trials. Yes, we shall suffer. But rejoice, because God has made you alive in Christ. He has saved you. You have been born again. Your sins are forgiven. And it's so easy to forget this fact. It's so easy to look at, at our problems in the now, in, in the immediate. But our greatest problem has been taken away. Yes, we, we might not have as much money as we'd like. Yes, we might have... Health conditions, yes, we, we might have lost family members. But our greatest need, which is salvation, by God's grace we now have it. We now have the greatest thing we need. And of course, if you're not here and you're not born again, then the Bible is very clear, you know, you must be born again. As Christians we rejoice that we've been born again and, and this makes everything worth it. But Jesus himself said, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And so I just want to just put that in there, just before we go to the next point. It's vital, it's vital that, that everybody here has spiritual life, and that spiritual life is only found in Christ. And so the first reason they rejoice is because God has caused them to be born again. Secondly then, we see they rejoice because they have an imperishable inheritance. An imperishable inheritance. Verse 4, it's... Um, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept for you in heaven. And so this is the living hope that the Apostle Peter spoke of in verse 3. He says that you've been born again to a living hope, and this is the living hope. It's an inheritance that is imperishable, that's undefiled and that's unfading. Here, of course, the Apostle Peter is speaking about eternity. And this is what awaits every single Christian. Every person who has been born again, as we just heard, they have an inheritance in heaven waiting for them. An imperishable inheritance. And it's almost unimaginable what awaits a Christian. That's why the Apostle Peter doesn't even attempt to describe it. But yet he knows three things. He knows three things with certainty. And this is what he tells us. He says it's imperishable. It's undefiled. And it is unfading. Imperishable means that it cannot corrode or decay. It cannot be damaged. Undefiled means that it's in, it's in perfect condition. It cannot be tarnished in any way. And unfading points to the fact that it will never change. Over time, it will always remain the same. It's not like a flower, which is one day here and next day gone. Unfortunately for the, the women, they don't last forever. But our inheritance in heaven is it's unfading. It will last forever. It will always remain the same. It is time-proof. Time-proof. 
And of course, we can contrast this with the Jews' earthly inheritance. This is what Peter's referring to. Because he's a Jew, whenever the Jews spoke of their inheritance, that they thought of the land. But yet, here Peter, surely he's contrasting it. He's saying that our inheritance, our heavenly inheritance, does not fade away, does not um, perish, and cannot be damaged. If we think about the land, the land, it, it did change, didn't it? And no doubt it will continue to change. It did fade. It was defiled by the sin of the people, and those people invaded the land and, and pilfered the land. And of course, it is perishable. It's been beaten by storms and droughts and famines. But the Apostle Peter says it's not so with the Christian's inheritance. With the Christian's inheritance, it will never change. It will never change. Jesus, he tells us the same thing, doesn't he? He says in the Sermon of the Mount, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures in, on earth where, where rust and moth destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Their inheritance in heaven cannot be stolen by thieves or destroyed by rust, uh, um, by rust or by moths. And though the church is being persecuted, though their loved ones are being killed, Yet in this they rejoice, but they know what awaits them when the Lord calls them home. We can think of it like an athlete, someone who's pushing themselves to the limit, missing out, missing out on socialising, uh, missing out on, on days off, skip, um, every bit of free time they have, they're spending training, pushing themselves to the limit, even to the point of pain, going as far as possible. And it's because they can see the end result. They can see that potentially they're going to win a trophy or an, uh, or an Olympic gold medal or a world title. You know, they enjoy, they enjoy the pain that they're going through because they have their eyes on the prize. And this is basically what the Apostle Peter is saying here. He's saying, though the church is being persecuted, though they're suffering, yet they rejoice. They rejoice because they can see that this is only temporary, but their inheritance is everlasting. They have their eyes on eternity. A book I recently read, uh, spoke of an Olympic rower, Catherine Granger, and it speaks of how she had a documentary on the BBC. Um, it was probably about 2012, 2011. And it was about um, possible Olympians for the 2012 Olympics. And it tells of a time where she's, um, well, if, if, it's actually filmed, and it's about the time when she was in a car. You know, it was early in the morning, probably about half five, five o'clock, and it was freezing, winter morning, and she's sitting there shivering, waiting for the ice to, to clear on the screen. And the cameraman at this point says to her, what on earth makes you do this? Everyone else is in bed, warm, and she's uh, shivering in her car. And this is what she said to the cameraman. She says, the podium, the podium. And no doubt the Christians that the Apostle Peter wrote this letter to were asked, how can you rejoice? Your sister has just been fed to the lions. Your brother has has been hung up and, and burnt to death. You've lost everything. How can you rejoice? No doubt they would reply, our imperishable inheritance. Our imperishable inheritance. And of course it's important for us to remember too, as we go through trials, as we suffer from bad health, as we lose loved ones, or even as we face persecution, we must remember that we have an imperishable inheritance. Heaven awaits us. We are to fix our eyes on eternity. We are to remember that this pain is but temporary, it's passing, but yet our, our heavenly inheritance is forever, forever and ever. We're to look past the present and look to the glorious future. 
And in doing so, like these Christians, we should rejoice and praise God. Of course, it's all by his grace. The Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he writes these words, and it's very fitting for this subject. He says, We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. If we were to just look at our life and, and look at our physical illnesses and look at all of our ailments, you know, we'd, we'd despair. But yet, the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul, they're saying that we don't look to the things that are seen, we look to the things that are unseen. We look to eternity. We don't look to this affliction which is light and momentary, but we look to the eternal weight of glory which awaits those that are saved. Though we may suffer now, yet by God's grace we don't lose heart, because our inheritance is imperishable, undefiled and unfading. Though we have pain now, one day pain will be no more. Though we struggle with sin now, one day sin will be no more. And though, unless the Lord returns, one day we will face death, one day death will be no more. What a great inheritance the Christian has. And surely no matter what we're going through, you know, this is reason to rejoice. So they rejoice because they've been born again. They have an imperishable inheritance. And thirdly, we see that they're being guarded by the power of God. They're being guarded by the power of God. Verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Not only can their inheritance not be lost, but neither can they. God will guard them to the end. It says that they are guarded by God's power through faith. It is God who ensures that they persevere to the end. Yes, it's by faith, but that faith is sustained by God all the way to the end. It's God who enables them to believe, and it's God who keeps them believing. The King James Version, it translates it like this. It says, kept by the power of God. Kept by the power of God. It's not themselves who keep themselves, but it's God who keeps them. You know, what hope have they hearing about an imperishable inheritance if at the end of it all, you know, they themselves can perish? You know, what, what hope would they have? What cause for rejoicing would that give them? But yet they are told that they're being guarded by the power of God. Not only has God caused them to be born again, not only do they have an imperishable inheritance, but yet they're being guarded by the power of God. And of course, this doesn't mean that they're being guarded from all harm and pain, because as he wrote this letter, they were, they were facing persecution, which, as we will see in a minute, it was for a purpose. But, but as I said, they're being guarded from falling away from the faith. It's what's known as eternal security or perseverance of the saints. God is keeping them by his power. The commentator Alan Stibbs, when writing on this verse, he says, Not only is this wonderful inheritance prepared for our enjoyment, but we for whom it is divinely intended are being continuously guarded. And surely this is what Jesus taught himself, didn't he? In John chapter 10, verses 28 29, it says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give to them eternal life, and they shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hands. He then goes on to say, My father is greater than I, no one can snatch them out of my father's hands. No one can snatch them out 
of my hand. They're being guarded and kept by the power of God. It says in, there in, that, in our passage in verse 5, it says they're being guarded by the power of God through faith. And then at the end, it says for a salvation which is yet to be revealed. Now what does this mean other, this mean other than there's, there's more yet to come? The best is still ahead of them. They're being kept by the power of God for their future salvation. And yes, in a sense, salvation was completed when Christ died upon the cross. And we received salvation when we believed in Jesus and we were saved. But in, in, there is a, is a sense where salvation is future when the Lord will return. And there will be the new heavens and the new earth. And we will receive resurrected bodies and all things will be made new. This is what the Apostle Peter says. We're being kept for this, our future salvation. Being kept for their inheritance, which is imperishable, which cannot fade away. I know that this brought great, great comfort to these Christians who are being persecuted. No doubt, as Christians all around the world who are facing persecution, even in this day, today, no doubt Christians will probably be killed today because of their faith. No doubt, as they read these words, that it brings them great comfort. You know, maybe they thought God had forsook them. Maybe they thought they'd lost their salvation. Maybe they're thinking, why am I going through this? But yet the Apostle Peter says that we're being guarded by the power of God. We can imagine like a train. You know, when we watch a train and it's going straight, it seems like everything is okay. You know, there's not, nothing to worry about. But as soon as it begins to go around corners and take bends at, at fast speeds, you know, it really makes you wonder how that train is even staying on the track. I actually Googled it. It turns out that there's, they've got a special mechanism in the wheels or something like that. But basically, you know, it wonders, you know, how is that train still on the track? And sometimes we can wonder, how can someone stay a Christian after they've been through that? How can someone still be a Christian after they've suffered as much as that person has? But yet we see it's because of the keeping power of God. Sometimes people go through immense suffering, yet by the end of it, they're a stronger Christian um, afterwards than they were beforehand. You know, why is it we wake up in the morning and we're still a Christian? Why is it? It's because of the keeping power of God. We see a great example of this in the Romanian Lutheran pastor, uh, Richard Wormbrand. Many of you might, might know about him. He was imprisoned and tortured for 14 years by uh, Russian communists. And the whole time they were trying to crush his faith. Uh, they weren't even allowed to pray. If they were ever caught praying in the prison, they were then taken and tortured um, for, for, for praying and, and even for um, sharing the word, anything like that. One time he was even caught praying. And then his, his torturer said to him, you know, why are you still praying? You know, your wife has been taken away. You know, your, child, your child is orphaned. You know, why are you still praying? And this is what he says. He says, I was praying for you. Richard Wernbrand said to the, his torturer, I was praying for you. And it's only the power of God, the keeping power of God, that could ever have kept Richard Wormbrand through all of that. It is only God working in his life that he could say to his torturer, I was praying for you. You know, God was with him and he never left him. He was guarded by the power of God. And that is what we see the Apostle Peter saying is happening to every Christian. C.H. Spurgeon once said, None can find out a single person whom God has forsaken after having revealed himself savingly to him. Those whom God saves, God keeps. And of course, again, as Christians here in England, in Paynton, we should find such great comfort from these words. Not only have we been born again, not only have we an imperishable inheritance, but we're also being guarded by the power of God. No matter what we're going through, God is graciously 
guarding us. Even when doubts come, it's almost like we could fall away at any moment. You know, God is keeping us. Even when we're going through suffering and we're beginning to question God's goodness and question his existence. You know, God is keeping us by the power of God. It's like the illustration found in Pilgrim's Progress. There's a fire there which represents the Christian and the, and the devil is throwing water on the fire. But yet there's a secret hand behind the wall putting oil on the fire, keeping the fire going. And this is what we see God is doing for us. Though the devil's attacking us, though we're going through suffering and pain and all these things, yet God is guarding us by his power. And of course, these should give us great reasons to rejoice. And so they're the reasons Peter gives for the Christians he wrote this epistle to as to why they rejoice. He says, in these things you rejoice. But then he goes on and he, and, and he tells them why, why they're suffering. Why they're facing trials. And this is the fourth, the fourth reason why suffering saints can rejoice. Not only have they been saved, not only have they an imperishable inheritance, not only are they being guarded by the power of God, but when they do go through trials, God has a purpose in it all. God has a purpose in it all. And, and we see this in verses 6 to 7. I won't read them, but this is where we see it. So the Apostle Peter here, he comforts the church and he assures them that God has a purpose in it all. He acknowledges that they've been grieved by various trials, but then he tells the church that God has allowed these trials so that their faith may be purified and proved genuine. These, these trials that they're going through was for sanctification purposes. Yes, they've been grieved by such trials, but God... God who has saved them. God has a plan in it all. God has a plan in it all. And this is exactly what we see throughout the Bible. Even if we look at the, the life of Job. You know, the devil, but, you know, by, by God's permission, took away all his family, all his possessions. He then inflicted his body with boils from head to toe. But yet we see that God allowed it. Because God had a purpose in the suffering of Job. And Peter tells his Christians here, he tells them that God has a purpose in their suffering. It's to test their faith so that it will be for the honour and the glory of the coming, at the Lord's coming, at the Lord's coming. You know, God has a plan in it all and the end is his glory. One thing to remind ourselves, you know, when we're going through trials is that God has never forsaken us. God is guarding us by his power and God has a plan and a purpose for our suffering. Another quote from C.H. Spurgeon, he once said, he said, the refiner, the refiner is never very far from the mouth of the furnace when his gold is in the fire. Now when we're going through trials, God is closest. And as we go through trials, we need to hold on to these things. You know, God has not forsaken us. And God has a plan in our suffering. In these two things we can, we can rest when our, our whole life turns upside down and everything seems out of control, yet we can rest in these things. God has not forsaken us. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And God has a purpose in it all. God has a purpose. God is all powerful and all knowing. He could stop it within an instant or he could have prevented it. But yet we see that he allows it and we see that he has a purpose in it all. Though all the all around us, all we see are thick, grey storm clouds. You know, God can see the sun through the clouds. He's making you more like Christ. He's driving you more to him. Through it, he's doing a work in your life or in someone else's life. 
You know, God has a purpose in it all. Romans 8.28. And uh, I do really recommend, you know, read this verse, study this verse, hold on to this verse. It says, all things, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. All things. In this we have to trust and to rest in God. We don't understand it. I don't understand it. But all things work together for good. For our good, those that are saved. And that includes suffering. That includes our suffering. God has a plan. And for this, it's not easy to think about it when you're going through the, through the trials. But we're to rejoice. We're to praise God. We're to worship him. And so in our passage, as I close now then, we find four reasons why Christians can rejoice, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of persecution, where these Christians that Peter wrote to were about to be persecuted, martyred, and killed for their faith. The first reason is they've been born again. Secondly, they have an imperishable inheritance. Thirdly, they're being guarded by the power of God. And fourthly, though they're suffering, yet God has a purpose and a plan in it all. You know, your tears are not wasted. God has a reason. God has a plan. But just before I finish, I just want to say that all this, everything I've just said, you know, it all applies to Christians. And it only applies to Christians. Everything only applies to Christians. And so I just want to ask, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, then what reason do you have to rejoice? What reason do you have to rejoice at all? Never mind when suffering. You're not born again. You're spiritually dead. You don't have an imperishable inheritance, but rather, as the Bible makes clear, you're on your way to hell. You're not being guarded by the power of God because you're separated from God. And your suffering can't be to test your faith because you have none. You have none. So what reason have you to rejoice? But this can change. You know, there's good news. The gospel is means the, God, the word gospel means good news, and there is good news. You know, the Bible tells us that we can be forgiven. We can be made right with God. You know, no one's too bad. No one's too old. The Bible says if we believe in Jesus, who died upon the cross for our sin, who died so that sinners can be saved, can be made right with God, then we will be reconciled back to Him. We will be brought into a right relationship with Him. We must turn from our sin. And turn to Christ. Jesus said, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. If we put our trust in Jesus, and Jesus alone to save us, not coming to church, not saying prayers, not baking cakes, not giving money to charity, but if we put our trust in Jesus to save us, and Jesus alone, then yes, we'll be saved, yes, we'll be forgiven, which is the main thing, we'll be right with God. But then these four reasons will also be your four reasons. You can rejoice in the midst of suffering. Just like Christians can. Why can a Christian rejoice in the midst of suffering? They've been born again. They have an imperishable inheritance. They've been guarded by the power of God. And their suffering, though we might not be able to see it now, is all for a purpose. It's all for a purpose. I'll just uh, close in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And for all that we find within it, Lord. And even for these verses where we find such comfort and such hope, Father. And I just pray for any person here now who are suffering. 
I just pray, Lord, that you apply these words to them and to their heart. And Lord, for each of us, maybe we've been through suffering or we will go through suffering at some point in our life, Father. Help us to ever be mindful of these four reasons, Lord. And I just also pray for any here who maybe do not know you, Father. I just pray that you really work in their lives. And Lord, that they will be found putting their trust in you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.